Well, good morning. We're going to continue with the Olivet Prophecy, looking particularly at the last part, this parable of the fig tree and the Lord's conclusion to the to the prophecy. Well, let's start with a, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, we come to you seeking for your wisdom and for your encouragement as we believe we live in these last days and as we seek to be taught by you how to live in expectation for your coming. Please then go with us and guide us. For your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, as you're aware, in all the records of the Olivet Prophecy, this sort of parable, this sort of uh, extra bit is added on at the end to the, of the parable of the fig tree, uh, at, at the end of the Olivet Prophecy, this parable of the fig tree, as if this is really very significant. And I think its significance is in the fact that The whole prophecy, the whole idea of the coming of the Lord is to some degree movable. And we talked about that in in our first talk on the Olivet Prophecy, that the whole idea was that the Lord could have come in AD 70, but he didn't. Or he could have come in the first century, let's say, but he didn't, because there were certain conditions that weren't fulfilled. And therefore what was possible was rescheduled until, we hope, our last days. And I think that the two, or at least the two main elements that required that rescheduling were that the gospel did not go into all the world and that Israel did not repent. And that is, I think, the significance of the fig tree parable. Now, he says, learn a parable of the fig tree, and it's almost as if he's saying, learn what the parable of the fig tree means, and yet he's already given a parable of the fig tree. And he's spoken earlier about how he came to the the, the fig tree on his way into town and he found that it only had leaves and he was so hungry, he was so looking for figs, but it only had leaves. And therefore he cursed it. Clearly enough, from that acted parable, the fig tree represented Israel and fruit on the fig tree represented fruit on the fig tree. And what was that fruit? The fruit on the fig tree quite clearly was and is spiritual fruit, the repentance of Israel. So then that is what was not there. And he says uh, here in verse 32 that when his branch is still tender, then uh, that is the sign that there can be, be fruit. And yet all through the Old Testament prophets, the tender branch is who? The tender branch is the Lord Jesus. The very same words are used. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, uh, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 17, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 6, all the way through. The tender branch is the branch of Messiah. The branch is the Lord Jesus. And so you see here that he's saying that the fig tree, that is Israel, have got to become, as it were, like him with that uh, tender branch. In other words, Israel have got to identify with him as their Messiah. And that is going to be the sign of his coming. Now in Luke 21, it says the fig tree and all the trees. And I think that it will be fair from that to conclude that there will be an outburst of spiritual growth or promise of fruit in all the nations. This is another way of saying the gospel shall go to all the world, to all the nations. 
<clears throat> now, you've also got uh, the, uh, the, the situation in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus tells a, a parable of how he comes to the, the vineyard, uh, just as God does, seeking spiritual fruit, doesn't find any, God says, oh, destroy this, and he says, no, no, please let it go for a little bit longer. So again and again, we're seeing that fruit on the tree of Israel, be it the fig tree or the vine tree, they're both symbols of Israel, that this speaks of spiritual fruit. And I think that this is the, the sign uh, of the Lord's coming. And he says that the generation that sees that will not pass until all is fulfilled. Well, I think that, of course, it could have happened in the first century. Why was there this amazing delay in judging Israel, etc.? Well, you know, from AD 33 to AD 70. It was simply because, as Peter explains, that God was waiting for Jewish repentance. That's what he wanted to see. And therefore, if there had been fruit on the fig tree, then the Lord would have come. <clears throat> now, I think the implication is almost, while the branch is yet tender... Well, that is the hope of uh, bringing forth fruit, because the parallel in the upper room discourse, in our first session we looked at all the similarities between the Olivet Prophecy and the upper room discourse recorded in John. The similarity between the, the fig tree parable is his parable of the vine there in John 15, where he says that the, the branches that don't bear fruit are broken off. And that, of course, is picked up in Romans chapter 11, where by then <clears throat> the, uh, the branch had been broken off uh, and needed to be grafted back in again. So I think it's almost as if the Lord is saying, look, whilst the branch is still connected, whilst it's still tender, there's still the hope of fruit. But if that is not forthcoming, then this generation shall not see it. So if you want to, to hasten the coming of the Lord... I would really say, get out there and preach to Israel and get Jewish people to repent. Because that, it seems to me, is the most significant uh, issue in, in the last days. Now, he says that when it puts forth leaves, then you know that uh, someone is near, that the fruit is coming, uh, etc., that that is the sign. And yet earlier, in Matthew 21, verse 19, when he's hungry and he comes to the fig tree, he finds it's only got leaves, and he's disappointed because there was no fruit, and he curses it. Now, it's almost as if he's saying that, look, I'm lowering the bar. I was disappointed before that there was only leaves on the fig tree of Israel, and I cursed it. But now, in this latter-day scenario, even if there is just leaves, the vague promise of fruit that will be the sign. It's as if the bar is lowered, as we saw it in, in the other parable, that eventually the, the servants go out and drag in anyone who's willing to say yes. Just drag in anyone into the, into the marriage supper. And they keep coming back and the, and the master says, no, no, there's still room. Just look, go and get anyone to come in. So it's as if in the last days, even the beginnings, even the vague promise of spiritual fruit in Israel, is going to be the sign of the Lord's coming. And I believe that we are seeing that in the, the beginnings, in the trickle of 
baptisms of Jewish people into, into the true Messiah, and even in the growth of the Jews for Jesus movement, which is Trinitarian and is, in my opinion, preaching a, another Jesus. And yet, all the same, it is not insignificant that significant numbers of Jews are turning in some sense to Jesus. I would see in all these things the beginnings, the leaves on the tree. And he says, when you see that, you know. Well, Luke 21 says, you know in your own selves that someone is near. It's as if there will be some sort of vague uh, sense, of roughly, of when he's coming. It's like 2 Peter 1, 19. The day star shall arise in your hearts. And we can discuss afterwards what exactly that means. But it seems to be saying that there will be a conviction that this is it, that he's, he's coming back. So then, then you will know that he is near, even at the doors. Now, that is picked up in, by Jesus in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, when it means that Jesus is asking others to repent and to turn to him. And opening the door means that the Lord has granted forgiveness. So his standing at the door surely implies he's asking for repentance. And this generation shall not pass, he says. Well, you can read it two ways. You can read that as him saying, the generation that sees these signs <clears throat> is not going to pass. Or he could be saying, just as a general global comment, this generation, you, my generation, our generation, will not pass. Now, all 38 New Testament references to Gilea, or generation, clearly mean this contemporary generation. So I think, again, there is no question that the Lord had in mind that he would come in the first century. This doesn't mean that he's capricious. What it means, I think, is that he's so sensitive to human repentance, that he is open to human repentance. He says... This generation will not pass until, until or be fulfilled. And yet if he really meant until, I think he'd have used the Greek word or the equivalent Greek word in Aramaic or whatever of chaos. Uh, but he doesn't. He, here he talks about chaos an, which really definitely implies a, a sense of conditionality until it might be that it is fulfilled. He does give this hint that this is conditional. And so he says in 35, my words will not pass away. And again, he uses logos there when I would really have thought he would have used another term. But he uses logos, I think, because of the idea that logos attends or can refer to the essential idea, the essence which is behind the, the spoken word. And so, the, the intention, the plan, as it were. And so he's saying that, look, my bottom line plan shall be fulfilled. But of course, how it will be fulfilled is, is relatively open-ended. And then 36, but of that day and hour knows no man, knows no man, you got a similar thing in Acts 1 verse 7, when the disciples again ask to know the date. And the Lord says that the times or seasons have been set within the Father's own authority. 
And I don't think he's given us a calendar date because he doesn't have one himself, because what he has are preconditions that must be fulfilled. Times and seasons which have been set within his own authority. When they are fulfilled, then the Lord comes. And that's why, straight away having said that, in Acts 1, he goes straight on to tell them, the disciples, of their calling to spread the gospel worldwide. You know, when are you going to come back? Oh, that's been set within God's preconditions, but you go and spread the gospel. Now, <coughs> he says that, he says that quite clearly, because he realizes that the spreading of the gospel is a precondition for his return. Now, another reason why we do not have a calendar date, why we do not know, is because if we did have one, then we would not be watching. Now, in verse 42, he makes it clear. Watch, therefore, because you do not know. Watch, therefore, because you do not know, neither the day nor the hour in which your Lord comes. So because you don't know, that is why you watch. So then watching is being ready for his coming at any moment. Living as if he will come back immediately, today, at any moment. And yet you only live like that because you don't know the day nor the hour. If you knew the Lord is coming back for sure in six months' time, then tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, you are not going to live, you cannot possibly live, as if your Lord is coming that day. And so I'm afraid, I think that <clears throat> all this idea of we are watchmen in the sense that we are supposed to uh, scan world events and the media and sort of connect them with Bible prophecy and therefore come to some idea that Jesus is coming soon or, or at such and such time or whatever. This is not only missing the point, it is actually very dangerous. That is not, N-O-T, what the Lord had in mind here. He says you do not know the time, but that is so that you will therefore watch. Not so that you will keep on scanning the media watching the telly and looking at the internet and trying to sort of hook it all up with ancient Bible prophecies. No, that's not what he's got in mind here. That is not being a watchman. That's just being a hobby level <clears throat> sort of uh, uh, Bible student or Bible reader. That's not watching for your Lord personally. So then... He really emphasizes this in the rest of this chapter, and in fact I'll suggest throughout chapter 25. And he says in this context, about not knowing the day nor the hour, verse 37, that it is as the days of Noah were. Well, Noah was preparing the ark 120 years, but I would suggest that he didn't actually know when the flood was going to come. He had some vague idea, of course, but he did not know in any detailed sense. Now, we know that he was then suddenly told in seven days' time that it's going to happen. And I suggest that if you look at Genesis 7, uh, 
that when he was told there will be seven days yet to come, uh, and then it will happen, that he did the gathering of the animals within those seven days. And I think that that is looking forward to a very urgent appeal to the world in the very last days. And my suggestion also would be that the huge size of the ark was not actually to save the animals. It was to save people, but nobody really wanted to come. And so in desperation, God says in the last seven days, go and get the animals in. And I think that uh, if you read Genesis 7, the beginning of there, that's, that's my take on it, but I'll leave you to, uh, to do that uh, on your own. And then, of course, he goes in, and the door was shut. And that is definitely picked up here in Matthew 25, the next chapter, verse 10. This is all part of the same section. But the bridegroom came, and those that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. That is exactly, exactly the language of Noah going into the ark, and the door was shut. So I think this is the idea as the days of Noah were, in this context of you don't know the day or the hour, well, he had this sense, this knowledge, that yes, judgment is coming, the day of the Lord is going to come. But he did not know the exact details until seven days beforehand. And I wonder if that is the same with us. That it may literally be a week before he comes that we know. And I talked in the last talk about possible chronologies of events, and I suggested that um, we are foolish to, to see these in terms of decades uh, of, of signs being fulfilled, but I suggested that the last days are literally the last few days before the Lord comes. And that the whole purpose of prophecy is not long-distance prediction ahead of time. Jesus said about his own predictions of his death that I'm telling you this so that when it happens, then you will understand and then you will believe. So the purpose of those predictions that the Lord gave uh, about his own sufferings in that case was not so that the disciples had a picture ahead of time, but so that when it happened, they knew, wow, this is it. This is what he said. There was no expectation that they would in that sense understand the chronology ahead of the event, and what good would it have done them anyway? Now, we keep reading about the coming of the Son of Man, verse 37. This is clearly quoting from Daniel 7, 13, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven again uh, is used about the Lord's coming. And yet, when you go on in Daniel 7, what is the interpretation that is given of the Son of Man? Well, Daniel 7, 26 and 27, The judgment shall sit, and the kingdom and the dominion shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So then, the Son of Man is interpreted in Daniel 7 as the people of the saints of the Most High. Not Jesus personally, but the body of Christ. This fits in with the suggestion I believe we made last time about what will happen when finally the cry goes up, he's back. And that is the call to go to him. And those who go immediately, who want to go immediately, are confirmed in that by being snatched away. This is First Thessalonians chapter 4. 
16 and 17, they're snatched away in clouds in the air, and they are with the Lord, and they come with the Lord in judgment. Those who delay, the foolish virgins who say, okay, now we're going to try and get ourselves ready, their delay means their rejection. That's why the Lord says in another parable, blessed are those who open unto their Lord immediately. Because those who don't will not be saved. In other words, our attitude in the day of knowing that he's back, in the split second when we're called to meet him, that will reveal everything. If you say, "Ah, yeah, coming, but not right now, okay. No. If he is the love of your life, and if you believe that for all your inadequacy, he loves you and you so want to be with him, that's it. Then you will go immediately. And that is the, the proof. Verse 38, <clears throat> But as in the days that were before the flood. Now, pro the flood, you could read that as meaning uh, immediately before. The seven days immediately before. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's as if in the world immediately around Noah, there was seven days of feasting going on. And in fact, if you look at seven days in the Old Testament, you'll find a number of connections between seven days and feasting. Esther 1, Job 1 for starters. And yet he warns in Luke 21, if you bring that material in parallel here, take heed to yourselves, this is Luke 21, 34, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares. Well, how can it be, if the believers are indeed under persecution, as we saw last time, how could it be that they're also liable to be caught up in drunkenness and cares of this life? I think the answer is that maybe for offering, as it were, a pinch of incense to Caesar, some nominal going along with the, the, the kingdoms of this world, we might be able to avoid all that and also get caught up in the material blessing that there clearly is uh, going on in the world of those last seven days. It could literally be few, a few days. It could be that... Uh, some Islamic superpower develops and makes some deal with everybody and there's financial prosperity for everybody, the world will never have been more prosperous. Just in the very last few days. Everybody's out there celebrating it, uh, rejoicing in it, etc. Thinks it's absolutely wonderful and great, etc. And the Lord comes. They didn't know, <clears throat> verse 39, until Noah entered... They did know, but it was tragically too late. And this is why people are going to gnash their teeth, because suddenly they realize, but all too late, the wonderful truths of the Lord Jesus. It's rather like the Lord says in Luke thirteen thirty-five: You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They will be resurrected and rejoice, uh, as it were, when they see his coming, and then they're told, and this is not for you, my friend. You crucified him. You didn't want him. You see, that's the difference. Well, he talks about the flood coming. They didn't know until the flood came. And yet, that's a Greek word, echomai. Uh, and in verse 38, you've got a similar word about Noah 
Eis erchomai, entering into the ark, coming into the ark. So the, the coming of Jesus and the, the going to him into the ark are basically the same idea. And you can understand that uh, if, you, if you run with the idea that I presented just now, that when the Lord comes, those who say yes immediately, who go to him, he, he comes to them, they go to him, and he confirms them in that by snatching them away uh, unto himself. But, verse 39, the flood came and took them all away. Now then in verse 40, one shall be taken, this is the same word, one shall be taken away and one left. Taken away where? This is taken away just as in the, in the world of Noah's day they were taken away by the flood. So I think that the one taken away is actually um, the one taken away to condemnation. And another will be left. And I would say that not all are responsible to divine judgment when the Lord comes. And so one will be taken to judgment, uh, to condemnation, and the other will not be, will just be left. Incidentally, he, he then says, 41, two women shall be at the, the mill. So often in his parables and in his teaching, he balances something taken out of the world of men and then something taken out of the world of, of women. I think he was 2,000 years ahead of his time there in his sensitivity. Now, he keeps saying, watch, verse 42, and so on. He keeps pressing this. Watch, all the way through the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew 25 as, as well. When he says 42 and 43, if the master of the house had known when the thief was coming, he would have watched for him. Implication is, because you don't know when the thief is coming, you therefore watch all the time. Now this is the whole point, that we don't know, and exactly because we don't know, that is why we watch. Now, the householder <coughs> here uh, is this uh, word, oikos despotes, which is used time and again about the Lord Jesus. But here it's used about us. We are doing his work. And I think the point is that our watching, as he goes on to say, is in terms of providing food to the fellow servants, caring for the fellow servants. That is watching. Not looking at the telly and watching the internet and trying to fit this in with some Old Testament prophecy. And then going on the internet and, or, you know, whatever, and, and exalting about this, that, oh, yeah, the return of Christ, yeah, it looks like it's going to be soon. No, the real watching <clears throat> is watching yourself, and it's defined here, really, as feeding others. And he says, but know this, if the household had known, then he would have watched. In other words, you don't know the day nor the hour, but you do know this, that you don't know it, if you see what I'm saying. <clears throat> Verse 44, be ready because in the hour that you don't think, he's going to come. So again, it is living a life of continual readiness. Now that is so difficult to live each day as if the Lord is coming. 
So I would say that that is actually a part of the Christian faith, to live every day as if we believe that he is coming today. So we are to live as if the return of Christ is imminent, regardless of our interpretations of prophecy, etc. The whole point is that when he comes, verse 46, we shall be found uh, so doing. He shall find us ready in that we are not beating the fellow servants, we are feeding them and caring for them. And uh, as he says in, in 48, if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, then he starts misbehaving. In other words, if he thinks, oh yeah, I know that the Lord's not going to come today, nor tomorrow, he's delaying. Then you start misbehaving. So actually, the idea of having a calendar date is connected here with misbehavior. Misbehavior towards your brethren. And in my experience, and maybe it's just uh, I was unlucky, but in my experience this has been the case, that those who are so dogmatic about their ideas about prophecy, etc., are some of the harshest, harshest uh, and, and nastiest uh, people that, that you can meet uh, within church life. Abusive towards others, because they're so convinced that they think they're right in their view of prophetic matters. Now, he says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Well, <laughs> the point is, the next chapter, 25, verse 5, the bridegroom tarries, same word, delays. The bridegroom does delay, this is the point. He does delay his coming. God's judgments were delayed, or they waited, in the days of Noah, First of Peter 3.20 for 120 years. And there have been all sorts of delays in the, the, the parable of the, the, the marriage supper. The whole point is that it was already come to the supper. Oh no, Israel didn't want to come. So he sends again, please come, everything's ready. No, sends his son, they kill him. But everything was ready every time that a servant was sent. So this is, again, why you can't know the time, because in any case there is a delay. And as soon as uh, he, he begins, verse, 30, verse 49, to beat the, uh, the fellow servants, <clears throat> the smidest fellow servants, then his Lord comes. And what shall he do? The Lord shall cut him asunder shall dichotomize him, that's the idea, uh, and show him as a hypocrite, show him for who he is, and he will have his portion with the hypocrites or uh, with the, the unbelievers, as it says in Luke 12. So then, he will go, he will be put in a group, just as the goats are in their group and the sheep are in their group. That the, that those who have wanted to be with this world will ultimately go there when the Lord comes back. Now, the Orphan Prophecy doesn't really finish at the end of 24. The whole of Matthew 25 is, I would say, a continuation of it. And the parables that you've got there are, I think, developing this same theme, that we are to live as if 
the Lord is coming imminently, our watching should be of ourselves and watching out for the household of the master, rather than thinking that we know when he is coming back. When you come straight after this, this uh, chapter 24, you come straight on chapter 25 to the uh, parable of the, of the virgins. And the simple point there is that the difference between wise and foolish was that the wise took oil. They thought, they guessed that there may well be a delay, but actually the bridegroom would not come when they thought. It was the foolish who, who thought, no, we don't need any oil. We know when the bridegroom's coming. We've got enough oil, we're good. I wouldn't go too deep into trying to interpret the oil uh, as if it's got to stand for something. Uh, spirituality or the spirit or something like that. I don't think that's actually necessary. Because the simple point is, leading right on from this teaching here, that the simple division between those who will be saved and those who will not be is that those who will be saved are those who recognize we don't know when he's coming back. And it's those who are so dogmatic that they thought they knew when he was coming back who did not watch themselves and are therefore left outside the kingdom of God. So this is a challenge, is it not? To get up every day and I say to ourselves, the Lord is coming back today, and I should live for him. Now, if you base that belief upon interpretation of prophecy, I think you shall be disappointed, and you won't keep up that intensity. But if we accept that this is how I am asked to live, quite regardless of Bible prophecy, quote, signs of the times, etc., that's different. Because that's all about your feelings about him and your relationship to him. Thank you.